He goes, do you know your grandfather had a violin all the way through combat? And I'm like, I'm like, holy my God. I'm like, really? He said, oh yeah. When we were on the front lines, he'd have a mute on it. He'd sit in his tent and play his violin in the tent while we're near the front lines. And we could hear this, a mute, like mutes it, right? But you can mm-hmm. still hear the playing. But then when we were back off the lines, he'd play his violin. And I'm like, holy moly. Are you a fan of horror movies? Then you've definitely heard of the Saw series. Would you believe it if I told you that there was an Assyrian behind the camera making the Saw films? Well, believe it. Hey everyone, it's great to be back for another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. This is Ninorta bringing you episode number 164 with David Armstrong. David was the cinematographer for the first six Saw movies and was also the director of Pawn and The Assassin's Code. David's love for stories and storytelling started at an early age from when his grandfather shared his stories with him. At that time, David decided to record his grandfather whenever he would share these stories, which in turn sparked the writing of his book, Dragons and Violins. Dragons and Violins is a book about love, war, hope, and the American dream. The book tells the story of his grandfather's journey through life, which covers the Assyrian genocide, immigrating to America, World War II, and so much more. I'm very glad that I got to sit with David to discuss his world in Hollywood and his journey writing Dragons and Violins. Before we begin, I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you to make sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us wherever you're listening. Also, if you know someone who should be a guest of the podcast or even a host in your country, please reach out to us. You can find out more information on our website. This episode is sponsored by the Ushana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Ushanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theushanapartners.com. And now, here's David Armstrong. David, thank you so much for being here with us on the Assyrian podcast. I know this has been a long time trying to schedule this with you, communicating with Ruth, um, who was a previous guest on the podcast. So I'm glad we were able to finally sit down and, and have this conversation. So thank you for being here. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, Ruth was very enthusiastic and it was, I listened to her podcast. It was great. So, and she asked me, I said, yeah, absolutely. And then at the same time, she was meeting my cousin, Sarah Bennett. Mm -hmm. um, And then they were meeting, they actually were meeting for lunch, like in New York, like the day I spoke to Ruth and I said, oh, that's my cousin. And then I called her and whatnot. Uh, Sarah is, you know, with the Syrians, everyone's a cousin. Yes. Um, you know, but she's actually a real cousin. Her 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 great grandfather was the brother to my grandmother. Okay. So there they were go. siblings. No, you got it. <laughs> so so um shout out to Sarah. I, I, I you know, and I haven't met Sarah in person yet. Really? Just, yeah, no, it's just been phone calls and texts and all this time wow. when we discovered each other. It was uh 23 and me. You know, and we reached out, and uh, and I've actually I have found other 
third cousin. She's my third cousin. I have another third cousin. Uh, his name is Donnie Esho. He's from Iraq and he's in Chicago. And so um, that's interesting. Can you? Well, I've never done twenty three in me, but since you said you've done it, how? What was that experience like? Well, there's two. There's as you approach the, the thing, you're like, they'll connect you with all the people that are, are related to you. And, and and if you want, they'll give you your health thing, too. Like you're mm-hmm. you're prone to getting this cancer or prone to giving that. And they have it. But I didn't buy it. I was like, I don't want to know. You know, it's like you're prone to being crippled the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. my God, I don't want to know that, you know, yeah. you know, so, um, you know, if I should ever need it, it's there. But it, it was I, I'm pretty good about not knowing things I don't want to unknow or mm-hmm. see things, you know, and someone says, Oh, you guys see this on YouTube. This is the worst thing ever. I'm like, no, no. I don't want the worst thing ever in my head. So thank you very much. But, um, but it's really fascinating. Cause I, I can tell from 23 and me, which side of, there's a lot of Assyrians that are on there and I'm half Assyrian on my mother's side. And the other half is French and Scottish, mm-hmm. you know, and and so it's and so on 23 and me it's almost a 50 50 it'll say you know euro asia 50 percent, mm-hmm. and then europe 50. so when i meet someone i can click on them and see relatives we have in common and then i i know by who they're related to which side of the family they're coming from my grandfather's side or my grandmother's side wow uh that's how i met adani and it's strange because his brother looks just like me he showed a picture of his mother, a picture of me, and and he has a beard and mustache. And she said, "When did your brother shave?" And he goes, "No, that's 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 not my uh, my brother, your son. It's someone else. It's, it's really freaky. I look a lot like him." Wow. And and then my other cousin, a, a man named uh, Pierre Nogle, who's up in Turlock. He 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 puts on all the Assyrian concerts that go up there and he he's a drummer and a producer and he's it, all those great big shows that happen up in Turlock. Uh, Pierre is behind a lot of them. Well, um, and so in PR has played with the famous middle Eastern uh, band members. I don't really bad with the names, a guy who has a white violin. I remember he's toured the world with him. And so I've grown up always being told Pierre was my cousin, you know, and, but you know, it's like, you're Syrian. Everyone's your cousin. Oh, you're mm-hmm. Armenian. Oh, we're cousins, right? And then 23 and me, we both did it, and we were like, "Holy beep, we're it's we're, true, we're true, we're cousins, we're third cousins." And his uncle is my second cousin, and he lives not far from me. And um, so I was like, "Oh my God, we really are related." And his mother mm-hmm. was like, "I told you, you guys were." <laughs> so it's it's been quite fascinating. I'm I'm really into that. I mean, if you know, if if anyone's ever if you know if you read my book, I mean, not I have read it, yes. But you could tell it was uh, it was quite a journey. It was it took me ten years to do the book, six years of research, and then four years of writing. And being I work in Hollywood and. I'm really story. I mean, I have a lot of scripts and stories, and I've I've directed. I've been a cinematographer. I have so storytelling is really my game, and I didn't want to make up stuff Mm -hmm. um, about my grandfather. You wanted the facts. I wanted the facts. Like I always grew up with my grandfather saying, you know, when we came to America, suddenly there was these huge explosions in the sky, and everyone panicked on the ship. But we were later told it's the Fourth of July, Mm -hmm. right? And then you grow up, and and you're like, you starting to put it all down to paper. You're like. Did you really come on the 4th of July? That Boy, that sure sounds like just good old grandfather stuff to a grandson. 
what made David Armstrong who he is today? Oh, my goodness. What a good question. What a stumper, too. Well, I was born at an early age. Actually, my grandfather used to say that. I love storytelling. I mean, I, I, it, it knew it before I knew it. I always, as a kid, I always had a camera in my hand. I always had a Super 8 camera with a projector and a splicer, and I was always making movies. I had no idea that people made movies, but I just loved movies. And, you know, back in the day before VCRs or anything, I used to take pictures, like with a still camera, of my favorite movie scenes and and try to capture them, like when I was eight and nine. And, like, they just sit in front of the camera, I'd frame it up and click. So I, I was always loving movies, and it was my uncle, my grandfather's uh, son, Paul, who... Um, who, you know, I was like, I think I was 14, and he's like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I gave a real smart answer all 14-year-olds give, which is, I don't know. Um, and and he said, well, you ought to be a cinematographer. You love movies, and you always have a camera. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. And I was like, well, what's a cinematographer? I'm like, I'd never heard of that before. So that was that was sort of my course trajectory of, of being behind the camera. And um, I... Yeah, I have a bachelor's degree and a master's in cinematography. My master's from AFI, the American Film Institute, and I have a, and then I I have was a camera assistant for like eight years, and then I uh, after graduating from AFI, I became a cinematographer and started shooting a lot of movies, and uh, strangely enough, I got known for uh, horror movies. Um, horror horror movies is what my name got tagged to. You know, the film industry, I don't think it necessarily. You know, um, uh, you, you don't get to pick it. It picks you. I think careers are that way. I mean, you don't you never think back. This is what I'm going to do. And, then, and sometimes it happens. You know, um, I knew I wanted to be in movies, um, take the artist path, which you know, I don't know if I'd recommend it. It's the traditional artist path. It's feast or famine and and that. But I just started I just loved being movies. I love being on movie sets. And uh, along with my fiance, Valerie, um, we write uh, scripts together. We have them at different stages. They've won, you know, they, we've gotten into comp great big competitions with them. Um, so we've done well. Um, and we're, I'm always at different stages of projects that are being made. And, and about eight years ago, I turned to being a director. And which is something I never wanted to do. I, I thought I never wanted to direct because as a cinematographer, you know, the show would you'd end for the day shoot and you're going to go have a drink with your crew and the director's getting dragged into another room, getting yelled at by the producers. And I was like, I don't want that job. Um, but like I said, it just sort of made sense one day and I just started directing and which was nice because at that point I had 30 years of experience on a film set. So directors who get on movies who've written a script but maybe have no set experience um it could be overwhelming and for mm -hmm. me it's it's home right mm -hmm. so um so that's that's who i've been that's been the, the thrust of my whole life is storytelling and filmmaking but and i didn't even know i liked storytelling even though i was doing it you know, yeah. it's, it's sort of reflections back in life. And you're like, oh, I really like telling stories. Mm -hmm. So what are some what are some movies that you've worked on that, you know, our listeners can be like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, um, I'm known for there's a franchise called Saw, the Saw franchise, uh, the Saw horror movies. Um, I shot the first six of those. Mm -hmm. Saw one through six. Um, I've yeah. been involved with those, uh, which you know James Wan 
was the executive producer and directed the first one. James is, you know, you, you probably know his, if you don't know his name, his movies are Fast and Furious 8, I think it was, mm. Aquaman, Insidious, The Conjuring. And so, um, uh, the, you know, James was just literally off the boat from Australia and out of film school when I met him and we started making that movie together and and a lot of other, you know, a lot of other lesser known horror movies and, and not horror movies too. Yeah, um, which is kind of I think I think has sort of an oxymoron. If you think that about me, and then you read my book about my grandfather, it's like you know, it's I mean, two the completely only, different things. Only <laughs> in there are the Turks. So <laughs> other than yeah. that, you know, because that's it's as a story as a cinematographer, good cinematographer can really photograph any movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get the story and you get the vision of the director. So, and that's what I was doing. I was following a vision and then I maintained that look as different directors came through because I was the one from the beginning mm-hmm. back when it was a low budget million dollar film on the first saw. So, um, but I, funny, I started this, I, uh, not, I started the research on this book just a year or two before I did saw. So mm. we're running that all kind of, they were going side by side. So, mm-hmm. And this so what my passion, this this book, but making movies as as well. Yeah, I can I can definitely tell that the writing was you was you were very passionate about it. Oh, thank you. What is the latest film that you're working on right now? What can you tell us about it? Well, the latest thing I'm working on are scripts. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I have uh, we have a, a pilot called girl's guide to the zombie apocalypse. And it's, uh, it's a great little pilot for a potential TV series of, um, it has zombies in it, but our zombies come from the medical community, meaning nanobots or the technology in our story. Nanobots have gotten to the point where you can just go to the beautician and you got wrinkles or gray hair or a blemish or something. And then we send nanobots in and they'll mm. fix it. But the nanobots in our story kind of go, wait a minute, everything in the human body is kind of screwed up. We should retool it. So that goes awry. And and so the, the, the zombie-esque characters in our uh, in our in our in our story are um, you know uh, are not traditional zombies, but you know they, you, you got to kill them through the heart, so you stop the blood. And you know you you make a joke like oh shoot him in the brain, like no no that's not going to do anything, you know because that's usually what it is in zombies. Mm-hmm. And it's and it revolves around a fourteen year old girl who is rescued by a fourteen year old boy who has Asperger's, and these two have to navigate their way through Los Angeles. They end up on the Universal backlot, trying to hide out on a pirate ship with a moat around it because the zombies don't know what to do with the water. So it's a safe place. So it's mm-hmm. it's heartfelt. It's really it's really you know how the adults are screwing up the world for kids and here we got two 14 year olds going this is not of our making which Mm -hmm. is so pertinent to you know the environment right because 14 year olds don't have a lot of say in like what the adults are doing or not doing yeah so we we have that series um and i have a true vietnam rescue story that is really a great story about two downed pilots that were rescued by this pilot who received the medal of honor and uh, it was the first navy pilot to receive the medal of honor we have that we have um, one that's like Lake House meets It's a Wonderful Life, where this present-day 
historian, uh, teacher, history teacher at school, finds a letter in this old house that was sent to someone back in World War II, but she realized it was stuck in the mailbox. This girl never got this letter saying, hey, I'd like to meet you when I come home from the war. So she writes this letter of like, oh, wouldn't it be nice? This is what would have been nice to write. And the letter accidentally gets mailed. And she's like, mm. oh, well, you know. And two weeks later, she gets a letter from 1944 saying, oh, my God, I'm so happy to hear from you. And she's like, okay, what's the joke? But it keeps going. Mm-hmm. And and the, the, the twist of the movie is she starts researching this guy, finds out he got killed in World War II. So she gets this idea, what if I write a letter have him go left instead of right, and he can get saved. Instead of being in the place where he got killed, I'll say, hey, go over here to meet my brother. And she does. She saves his life. And she discovers in this little town these eight these eight soldiers that came home from World War II, had children and populated this town, are suddenly gone. It's now the eight soldiers that didn't come home from World War II, and they never had their children. And she's changed the town, and it's not this wonderful place like, it's a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. It's And so she's like, oh, my God, I have to undo somehow what I've done and get this guy killed to maybe reset time. Oh, my gosh. So it's a love letters through time. And uh, we have comedies. And uh, we're, we're Valerie and I are, are a little bit of everything. It, it drives our manager crazy. He's always like, pick one topic and stay with it. Really. Mm-hmm. No. So who has been the m- most influential movie star that you've worked with? Movie star. I guess that's going to be Ray Liotta. Okay. Ray Liotta was in my first film I directed, and Ray was great, called uh, Pawn, P-A-W-N. The phone rang, and I was in Connecticut prepping the movie, and the phone rang with a number from Los Angeles that I didn't recognize. And I said, hello, and he goes, he goes, Dave, it's Ray Liotta. I'm like, well, no kidding. It's Ray Liotta. And, and, I, and I, I said in an expletive, I was like, F, oh, wow, it's you. And he goes, well, what does that mean? I said, well, not every day, you know, Ray Liotta calls you. And he laughed and he goes, F you. And, and I go, and I go, and we laughed. He says, let's have dinner. I'm like, okay. And so when he came out, we met for dinner and we had a great time. He was, he He's like, I see you've done a lot. You I mean you've been in the business like I think at that point maybe 35 years. So he says, But this is your first film director. He goes, Yeah, first time director, but not first time on the set. So when Ray got out here and we started doing scenes, you know, there was some notes that came from the producers that that he didn't agree with. And he just pulled me aside. He says, Look, do you want it like this or do you want it like this? I said, oh, I want it like that. He says, then just stick to your guns. You know what you're doing. This is what's going to be the best thing. And I know you know it. And he's like, and it was, he was only there for two days. He didn't have to take the time. He could have just done his job. And and, and not in a rude way. He could just done his job and delivered what I wanted. And that, but I mean, that he, that he said that, that meant the world to me. And I remember he texted me from the airport. He says, don't let anyone give you any shit. He says, you know what you're doing. Take care. And I was like, I wish I'd saved that text. Um, but, you know, that that meant the world to me. Because, I, you know, I, I think Ray's just amazing. You know, the movies he's done are amazing. And and he's so much like the characters he plays. He's just, he's just no BS, straightforward. Yeah. He's a straight shooter. And, and that's such a great thing to have on a movie set. You just know what you're dealing with. You know, there's nothing worse than you're not, are you, you know, trying to figure out what people are thinking or saying, which is you know, happening all the time. It's artists everywhere. But, uh, 
Ray, Ray was really, really great. I, I, that was my first time directing. And, um, you know, I've met a lot of actors over the years. Um, um, yeah, you know, way back. But yeah, I'd say Ray Liotta. That always left a great impression on me. Just, just yeah. a little encouragement that, that meant, a lot, meant the world to me. So I'm horrible with like actors' names and I just had to Google him. So for listeners, he's he's the guy in Goodfellas. What other movies? Oh, he was in Field of Dreams. He was in Hannibal. Oh, he was great in Field of Dreams. Mm-hmm. Just had this great little emotional scene. It was a little unknown back in Field of Dreams. Yeah, he's also done TV shows like Shades of Blue. No, Ray's... Ma- mainly, mainly Goodfellas, yeah. Well, Ray, yeah, Goodfellas. But yeah, Ray's done so many things. Yeah, yeah. So that's awesome. Okay, so let's, I want to dive into um, the book, Dragons and Violins, that you wrote. So the title is Dragons and Violins, A Memoir of War and Music. Can you tell us what is the book about? My grandfather. What else do you need to know? That's it. (laughs) End of podcast. podcast. Thank you. I know it always, you know, I know you've read it and it it has a huge sweep to it, right? And it's always funny, the reaction when I say to people, I'm like, oh, I wrote this book about my grandfather. Everyone gets this look on their face, like, oh, how quaint, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know but your wrote, grandfather is a really cool dude. It's got a huge scope. You got World War One, the Russian Revolution, the Turkish genocide, coming to America, the American Depression, World War II. I mean, it's it's backdrops galore. You know, as I started to say earlier, it came about because my grandfather was a great storyteller. You know, and it's funny in thinking about this podcast today, I was thinking, oh, I guess maybe I got that from my grandfather. So even though he was a great storyteller, I never quite connected. Oh, I do the same thing. I like I love telling stories. And so did he. And but there's also something about stories. I hate for stories to get lost. And I'm really I, I find that in this life, I'm good about about warnings, you know, things to come. You know, I've, I've heard so many times people say, oh, I wish I'd gotten those stories from my grandmother or my grandfather, oh, before they died. And I remember thinking, well, I don't want that to happen. So I sat down, I have about 25 hours of recorded video with him. I came up, you know, we did over like several months period and I started off at the beginning from what he knew of his life, you know, being born in Ormia and, and, and we just, we just kept moving forward. And, um, and his two nephews, when my grandfather was an uncle at six, his nephews were like two and three. So they were still alive. I was able to talk to them and many relatives. I have endless boxes of stuff. My grandfather kept everything. Like I have all their paperwork from the caucuses coming to America on the paperwork. It says reason to coming to America. My grandmother had them type to, uh, to escape being killed by the Turks right there in black and white, you know, well, it's now yellow and black and the papers faded, but I I have those framed. And, um, and I didn't want those stories to be lost. I, 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 there's something magical in stories and, and, you know, there's so many people dying all the time. You, you can't get all the stories and not all the stories maybe are, are worth telling, but um, you know, not judging anyone else's story, but I didn't want mine to go. And I just had heard enough people say to me in life going, Oh, I wish I had, I wish I had recorded. I wish I had written them down. And so I made sure to record them and write them down and, and being a purist as a storyteller, as I said earlier, I, I, I wanted to verify things. 
I got verified. So as I mentioned earlier about him coming to America mm -hmm. on the 4th of July, he remembered the name of the ship. Um, and I, and that's all I had. I didn't have names to go through. So it was the King Alexander. And I found ships manifest for a King Alexander ship that came in on July 2nd, 1921. And one thing I learned is you think people come to America, boat pulls up and you get off. But no, there's a bunch of boats and they got to process people. So you sit on the boat mm -hmm. until they're ready to call. So I had found that he came, his boat arrived on July 2nd and he processed through Ellis Island on July 5th. I was like, holy cow, he really was on the boat during the 4th of July. He was right, right? Not, not that, you know, I mean... Not that I didn't think he wasn't telling me the truth, but I just, you know, I didn't want to put a book out there and have everyone challenge me and go, well, he said he did. <laughs> so, yeah. so um, and the name game with the Syrians is a nightmare, absolute nightmare, right? And because not only, because I have paperwork from when they were in the Caucasus trying to come to America, I have ships manifest and everything is spelled completely different. You have no idea why you're looking up these spellings yeah. until you realize, until they explained to me at Ellis Island that Ellis Island doesn't change names. They get ships manifests and whatever's on the ship's manifest is just the names they get. So you've got a Greek ocean liner who's bringing Armenians and Assyrians on board. And, and the last name was Kavergis, Kavergis, mm -hmm. right? But, but, if you don't know the language, if I say Kavergis, do you hear a K or a G? Because mm -hmm. on one form, it's like K-E-O-R-I-G, and you're like, what is that? And then another one's like G-E, and you're like, my head started exploding, right? Yeah. And on top of that, my grandfather's last name was Edgar, George Edgar. So, And nobody knew where Edgar came from. Almost eight years to figure out where Edgar came from. Because, you know, you, you get your father's first name becomes your last name. So his yeah. father's first name was George of Sardegus, right? So Sardegus is George, but no one knew where Edgar came from. So I went, when I was going to Ellis Island, I visited his nephew, Al, who had this big box of photographs. Now, my grandfather's father and the two older sisters came from uh, Christina, which is now Oslo, Norway, in 1916. They came mm -hmm. to America, which I found out by chance by being at Ellis Island, looking up the names. And 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 that was after I visited Al. He said, here's a box of photograph. And there was a picture of my grandfather's sister. And it says Nanajan, what's his, her first name? Mm -hmm. Nanajan Edgaroff on her wedding day in the Bronx. I'm like, Edgaroff? Where the hell is Edgaroff? And I'm like, but that's the first boy I had Edgar. So then I put in Edgaroff at Ellis Island brought my great-grandfather up and his two daughters. And then I realized what they did when they came from, um, from which is now Oslo, um, you know, they speak Armenian, you speak, you speak Assyrian, you speak Russian, you, you know, all those languages, because you're in that sort of that world. I realized that they, they pose as Orthodox Russians mm. and crossed from, you know, then Persia all the way across Russia got to Oslo and then came to America. So they were, they, and they hid under the name of Edgaroff. So then they got to America, dropped the off, he all he got is Edgar, mm. right? And then Sargus was obvious being George. And um, so then that's how my grandfather became George Edgar. Mm. So, and, um, and so, well, that's it. I mean, that's, I mean, that's not it, but that's, that's sort of the scope of, 
why I wanted to tell it. I mean, and honestly, and, and the, the biggest reason is I, I love my grandfather more than anything. My grandfather and I had just the world's best relationship and, and we just loved each other dearly. I mean, it just, it was a relationship of, he never withheld his love to me. You know, he could be upset or mad, but it, it just, whatever it was, he just, he just was the kindest man I ever knew. I only saw him once in the 43 years I had him on this planet. I only saw him once. It was the most ferocious thing I'd ever seen in my life. But, but what he had to do to survive was unbelievable, you know, in Constantinople and catching a, a Russian dragoon raping his mother and taking his rifle and killing him. And I mean, like, and, you know, these, and so many of these stories I would got just sort of got confirmed when I spoke to relatives. And there was just a huge story that just wanted to be told. But I mean, even though this is the Assyrian podcast, I wrote it because I loved my grandfather who happened to be Assyrian. Yeah. Right. So, so I'm, so, you know, if you read the book, I feel confident I never thrusted these, this is what happened to Assyrians because it wasn't, I didn't want it to be that story. I mm -hmm. wanted it to be his story. And, and, and in telling that you get the backdrop of what, what Assyrians went through and that, and, and as a storyteller, I think it's, it's, it's the way you get people interested. It's the way you get people on board. Cause if you just say, Oh, let me tell you about the genocide. This was this horrible event. You know, mm -hmm. other people go, okay, first you got to explain who Assyrians are. And like, you mean like the Jewish Holocaust? Well, no, but it's different. You mean like the Armenian? You know, everyone's got this tragedy story. And, yeah. and you know, and people within the culture, like, oh, I know that story. And people outside the culture are like, well, I don't know if I particularly want to read about just that. Yeah. I always think of like James Cameron's Titanic. He loved Titanic. And if he just made a movie about the ship, nobody would have cared. But what if you have a romance story on the ship that's, mm -hmm. you know, then mm -hmm. and everyone knows about it. So I, I knew I was I was sort of killing two birds with one stone by making Assyrians known and their story and their history and their contributions and who they were. And I get to tell his story because I feel I mean, I feel confident that the story was told you know, people who, who didn't know about Assyrians always say, oh, my God, I had no idea about this culture, yeah. these people and all that this happened, you know, but but they went through they read through the whole book because they're following the character. Right? Yeah, exactly. And and that's what it's all about, that you're you know, you're adding in that information about Assyrians in the background of of the story and people follow, you know, the happiness and they're not going to follow a story about genocide, like you said. Yeah, it it you know it's it, it, you say the word you know hey would you like to read about a genocide you're like uh sure just leave it on my desk I'll get to it later it's just you know but how about a story and wrap it around so you know I I uh, Ruth Cambar who you mentioned earlier has been a real champion of mine and she's become a great friend and Ruth is working very hard to get this. Um, you know, uh, my vision originally was a movie, but I think, mm -hmm. oh, how, am I, how am I going to tell these these sweeping three or four decades in a movie? So then I thought, well, a 10-part limited series, you know, sort mm -hmm. of like Band of Brothers in 10-part series. So and Ruth and I are talking about starting a, like a GoFundMe to mm -hmm. just raise enough money to have a, a pilot written and then subsequent episodes mm -hmm. um, 
written uh, out or outlined. Um, so, you know, that's that's one phase to take it through. It's, it's hard to get period pieces made. It's hard to get pieces made about, you know, the people don't know about you know my grandfather is no one particular just had this amazing journey mm-hmm. but you know but you write the pilot and you hopefully take it out and then you know and also um it, you know and i'm very honored that uh, ruth is gonna have a bit of my grandfather and a few things um at the uh, uh at the exhibit up at, at cal state on june 30th mm-hmm. uh this the stanislaus modesto turlock uh, uh exhibit who was put on by Ruth Cambar, Hannibal Travis, Kathy Said, Zatari, and Aaron Hughes. And it's from the grant from California Humanity at Cal State. And um, and I'm sure you know about it coming mm-hmm. up. Yeah. So and so um, we're working, she's working to have something of my book. I have uh, if you go to my website, dragonsandviolins.com, uh, I've you know, being a Hollywood guy, I put together a great trailer with images and music that sort of encompasses. I that. saw that, yeah. Did you see it? I did. I, it was like really cool. I mean, I read the book and then seeing the trailer, I was like, oh, I really want it. I want to see this as a movie or a series. So. Well, See, it's working. That's what you do. That's how you get, that's how you get projects sort of thrown out there. It's like, ooh, book, ooh, movie. So, um, yeah, if you go to the website, you could see the the trailer. I mean, it's it's images from other movies with music, but you know, it's uh, combined. And um, and my and my cousin Pierre, I showed it to him, and he he had a he's like, well, you need some Assyrian, and I'm like, well, it's kind of there. So it was his idea of in between when I bring up titles of you know the man the husband and war mm-hmm. there's assyrian relief stone relief mm. i put but if you remember behind it mm-hmm. so that, was, just... that was pierre's idea to um like to just sort of add a little bit more like oh yeah get a little bit more assyrian in there yeah and um so um so so that's her do i'm really honored she's going to have that uh, something up there of me in the exhibit she sh- um and um, i still have my grandfather's violin and uh, trying to see if I can work out something where it can be up there presented, or, or maybe a three D holograph. We're working out those 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 things right now. And uh, you know, I don't I don't have a lot, but I have a few things to share. But um, mm-hmm. you know, the goal is you know my dream is to have this made into a ten part series, and mm-hmm. you know where I tell his story, and then the world can learn who Assyrians are. Yeah. Through his story. Engaged in the story. I mean, you know, I think Dr. Shivago is a great, you know, thing. It's Dr. Shivago and that story. And, you know, um, it's not, you know, about Russian and communism and, 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 you know, the World War One and all, but you fall, you know about that history because you follow the character. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's sort of this over here on one side. Well, I work on my career over here. This is over here. But Ruth, Ruth has been a real champion. Of, of trying to get it out there and, and speaking to people on my behalf. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled that she's taking that on. It's a, it's a big journey. You know, I, I mean, I honestly, I, you know, would, it needs funding like anything, but you know, maybe someday mm-hmm. I can get a few Assyrians interested to, to back me. Absolutely. So can you tell us some snippets of your grandfather's, you know, life that really stood out to you? Like, l- like events that, that you talk about in this in the in the book that are like this is amazing i mean for me personally reading through it well when he killed a man at a young age yeah um, well yeah so like, it was in the caucuses where he killed the soldier and then when it's funny in interviewing him 
he wanted to go back as a boy mm-hmm. at about 10 or 11. He wanted to go back to Constantinople. He wanted to go back to Turkey. He wanted, he, he really hated being in America mm-hmm. because he was this poor immigrant kid. He says, I didn't, I had one pairs of shoes. I didn't have clothes. He said, I had acne and people would make fun of me. And he says, when, when he got to Constantinople and like in, you know, Turkey and like 19, 19, 19, 20, 19, 21, they were there for like three years. And he says, he says, I had friends. I had a little job. I had pets. Uh, my mother was a cook at the American embassy. Uh, she got a job. And, and that was another thing. Cause I went to Turkey. I wanted to follow in his footsteps. And so I, he said, I remember the embassy as it had this huge Eagle on the front steps of the building. And he described the building to me. And, and again, you're like, you know, this is 70, 80 years later. Um, so I went to Turkey, that embassy was closed, but it was still there and it was, but it was boarded up. And someone who, who was a friend of mine there, uh, I went to Turkey. Uh, she took me there and, and there was that building and there was that big eagle and the, and the, and the side door, he described how we would go the, down to the side door and he described it all to me. And I'm like, there's the building. Yeah. And he, and he also I remember him telling me that he, he, there was a man who was hoarding food and keeping it from the immigrants and whatnot that he got involved in. And the, because my grandfather had found out this man was trying to kill him. And he said that, you know, he, they, his home was near these cliffs and the cliffs were right on the river. And he said they were really tall and I couldn't quite fathom what he was talking about where the guy tried to kill him and he twisted it and got the guy fell over the cliff and so I get to Istanbul and I'm like, there's these massive cliffs. There's that embassy he was talking about. And, um, you know, there, there are stories, uh, uh, you know, of heroism of that is, you know, um, he, he, when they were fleeing in the Caucasus, um, there was his a Russian dragoon was raping his mother, he came down the stairs and the guy laid his rifle up and my grandfather picked it up and, they shot the guy and and my and he said my his mother my great grandmother was like what have you done what have you done he's like well so they um they burned him in an incinerator at the local bakery you know to hide the body they were terror you know and, and mm-hmm. in absolute fear about what was going on like that i um i remember in world war ii he came, he told me about this French Assyrian family he came across. And ironically, I found a picture of them because he had he just had all these documents. And there they are, this French Assyrian family. And and you could see this little boys wearing this hat, my grandfather's little cap, right? And so he would all have these amazing moments in time that were, you know, uh, uh, where is he? He was, he was working for the uh, gangster Dutch Schultz, you know, running money and things like that. And, and the other thing is my, when I was talking about the, my grandfather would tell me a story. You know, as he moved into his teen years, he started telling me about his girlfriends. And, and I'm like thinking, and, and, on the, and on his document, it says 1915. So I'm thinking he's telling me these stories like he's 14, 15. I'm like, you seem awful mature to be having these relationships with girls at 14, 15. I just couldn't quite figure out because I could follow the dates and timelines. Yeah. So one day I took the documents they had, and I don't remember why I thought this, but I took a little number two pencil with an eraser, and where it said 1915 on this large document, and I started to lightly rub on the five, and the five disappeared, and it turned into a two, 
and it was 1912. Mm. Oh, when he's 15, or I thought he's 15, he's really 18. Mm -hmm. And so I realized what they did because he's now in American school system. He'd be too, too old for the classes. He would have no education in the classes. So they pulled him back three years so so he could be at the proper education mm -hmm. right so so i'm like so you know and he's 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 got the you know body of an 18 year old and everyone thinks he's 15 he's this really well developed 15 year old so and you know and as you and if you see the book he he was an athlete too mm -hmm. around gymnastics and um there was a guy named avery brundage back then who said if you weren't born in america you couldn't represent america mm -hmm. so he didn't get to participate yeah. And that happened to other athletes. I think I remember that to a woman diver, and uh, but there were other people that. So you know, he didn't quite get his chance to go to the Olympics, even though he had qualified. Yeah, and, you know, he just had these little little moments in time. He 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 um, during he he went to a gym uh, which which was all Germans, right? And you know, and and he did talk about in the book. They say, hey, you want to come to a Nazi rally? But you know, Nazi rally in 1937 is just. You know, it's just it's just a thing. It's yeah. you know, he hadn't done their march into Europe yet. And he's like, no, I'm not into that. But he knew this one German uh, gymnast who he ends up finding at the end of World War II. And and I'm like, really? He says, yeah, we came into this town. These Germans surrendered. We took them to a POW camp. And I'm like, wow, I wish I could prove that. And in his files, there's this little piece of paper I found. It's a receipt for 157 German POWs he turned over, right? And wow. that this guy was part of it. So it's just like every story he had, I was able to I was verify. Able to verify. And um, it, it was quite fascinating. The stories are just quite fascinating all the way through. Just sort of crossed paths of history, you know. And then he was in D-Day plus four, four days after D-Day. He was from there till the end of World War II. And, um, and the things that they had to do, was, it was quite amazing. Because they, they, he was a bridge company, and they would just supply the bridge equipment and mm -hmm. engineer build it but every time they would get to a river the engineers would go like we really don't know how to build this thing you guys need to build yeah so they'd end up building and and how world war ii worked is every time the the allied forces advanced every time they came to a river he had to stop because there's a river there and so he'd get to a river and they literally would be this one river he got to they said you need to build a bridge and we'll cross it and the guys and there's an artillery school that goes all the way back to the days of napoleon there's this german artillery school and their thing is artillery and they're just pounding the bridge and they say well you got you, know, you got to go build the bridge while they're shooting at you and then when you do we'll cross and they'll stop but there's no way we can stop them because we can't get there you got to build a bridge so that yeah. was you know that was part of his heroism but the, the through line all the way through was his violin he was a violinist so there was a guy named russell martin who was a, a book author and russell helped me edit the book over the years um, because i'd never written a novel before so i hired russell to be my editor as we went through as he guided me to do it right writing i know but not in the book form it's different mm -hmm. than the screenplay so russell said to me he says you know we ought to write in there that he had a violin in World War II, a violin in combat, and a violin. And I'm like, I said, Russell, I just, it was the only time Russell and I argued over a four-year period. I mean, we like really got our, he goes, no, I'm not going to do it. I, I said, I, I never thought of asking my grandfather before he died 
did you have a violin in combat? He goes, yeah, but it'll be a great, you can embellish that. It'll be fine. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I want to be real purist about this. I was really stickler about it. It was, a, you know, and I totally agreed with Russell. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So one day on the internet, back in like 06, when documents were coming up, I, I found an, a fellow officer guy named Bill Baker. Mm-hmm. who had all these documents in the National Archives. I'm like, oh, my God, he has all these documents from his time. He wasn't an engineer. He was a replacement officer. So I called the National Archives. I said, hey, can I have these documents? He said, well, you got to get the permission of Bill Baker. I said, well, he's, got, he's dead. You know. Mm-hmm. He said, well, just write him a letter, certify it. When it comes back, show us. So I write Bill you know, this letter that I'm not expecting anyone to read. So, dear Bill, I'm George Edgar's grandson. Could I X, Y, Z, this, this, this. And two weeks later, a letter comes back saying, oh, Dave, yeah, no problem. You could have whatever documents. And I'm like, holy God, this guy's alive. Well, so I get on the phone. I call him. And I said, Bill, uh, David Armstrong, George Edgar's grandson. He's like, oh, my God. Hi, how are you? And the first thing Bill says to me, he says, did you know your grandfather was a violinist? I'm like, well, yeah, kind of did, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, he was in the you know, Santa Barbara Symphony Orchestra for 30 years. He's one of the founding members, yes. He goes, do you know your grandfather had a violin all the way through combat? And I'm like, I'm like, holy my God. I'm like, really? He said, oh, yeah. When we were on the front lines, he'd have a mute on it. He'd sit in his tent and play his violin in the tent while we're near the front lines and we could hear this a mute like mutes it right but you can mm-hmm. still hear the playing but then when we were back off the lines he'd play his violin and i'm like holy moly so of course i've recorded the conversation and i have bill on tape but i'm with i didn't even ask him. i wasn't even going to ask him that i'm yeah. I was amazed that bill was alive so he was in Thomasville, Georgia. I flew to wow. Georgia, interviewed him. I've interviewed men from his unit in like one of their last reunions, like 10 of them in, in uh, Salina, Kansas. And, you know, I ran around all around the world in America interviewing people. I just I just didn't want to make stories yeah. that, that were great stories, but I wanted them to be based in some truth. I, I always envisioned if I was ever up in front of an audience you know, and, and people questioned on me. I wanted to support it. Mm-hmm. And it just, and it just, that's why it took me six years of research. It was just, it was a lot of flying around recordings, conversations, relatives, transcripts, you know, and I had every recording of every conversation. And then you put it in transcripts and you have this mass thing, but that was it. And then I called up uh, Russell Martin. I go, it's in, the violin's in. It's, he had one. Bill said it. I didn't even ask him. And I was, it just changed everything. But, you know, it all, it all revives, revolves around that violin. And, and he had some PTSD after World War II that he didn't know about till after he passed. And I talked to relatives and said, yeah, your grandfather got to a point where he wouldn't even leave the house. Wow. He just wouldn't leave the house. He couldn't drive a car. And and so the violin, he, he uh, a woman named Ann Tischer, who was a lifelong friend who moved to Santa Barbara, Ann Tischer said, you've got to get into this competition. And he won this competition to solo with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1956. And um, I was like, wow, what a great way to end the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually, my idea of how the movie would start <laughs> would be you see this man in his white tuxedo with his bow tie and he's backstage waiting to be called on stage and here's booming music and the booming music will transition us back to a parapet in 1912 when Kurds were, were shooting and 
fighting with the Armenians and the Syrians, and his father was on the roof of the rifle and the parapet while his mother's giving birth in the barn, you know, and and it and that would be the opening, and then and it and the movie just you know, after ten series, it comes back to the end, mm-hmm. you know, it comes to that moment in time where, you know. He he. The thing he was the most. He always said, "I never played as good as I did that night." In 1956, he said, "I never played as good," you know. And it's it just has such a great book ending, and it's you know, and it's 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 an Assyrian story, but it's an American story, hands down, an American story. Right, we're a country of immigrants. Absolutely. This is this is an immigrant who. Who was an engineer at Raytheon for thirty years? He had designed the first infrared scope, right? For for rifles, he was he uh, was in on the design of the first uh, microwave, the Amana microwave. And I have a picture of him with it. The microwave is as big as if you took a van and tilted it up to down, like wow. this is massive. It's like it took up an entire room, and it has this little tiny door for the microwave and this massive. Wow. Room. And so he was involved in being an engineer. Uh, liberating Europe. I mean, as a combat veteran, I mean, he was, um, you, you know, it's, it's, you know, he's flawed like all human beings, but, you know, as I idolized him as my grandfather, but even with all that idolization, I wanted to, I vetted all the stories and it yeah. took a long time. I mean, I had to go to Istanbul to check out the embassy. I had to go to Ellis Island to check out the records. I mean, it's, uh, it was a lot of research, but it's it's an American story, hands down, about an immigrant mm-hmm. who just happened to be a Syrian. Yeah, and I think I think if I could ever get the movie made, that movies make such a difference in what we know in history. I'm like, you know, you've heard of the Romans, right? But we know the Romans because there's Roman movies. You know, mm-hmm. one has seen Gladiator. You get a sense of the Colosseum, and and I think I think when a good story is told with, you know, that story, people can learn who the Assyrians are. It's a great way to educate through story, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I was reading it and I'm just going through after like every single thing in, in the book and I'm like, there's no way that all of this happened to one person. That's like- what I said. <laughs> and I wrote it. That's why it took me 10 years. I mean, I really had to place him in the play. I knew he was in the caucuses. I knew where, you know, where they were. I had, I mean, I have addresses to where they were. Yeah. Um, I went and visited, you know, his mother and father's tombstone in Connecticut. You know, I wanted to see it and have it translated. It's in Assyrian and in English. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I interviewed the relatives. I interviewed the combat soldiers. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, there's also a website for his unit. It's called the 989th Engineer Treadway mm-hmm. dot com or treadwaybridge.com. And uh, but I think that's all listed on the website. And, um, you know, so I, I know it is, isn't it? It's hard to believe that happened. But but then people will call me. I get calls. The, the, the most endearing thing about writing this book, which I didn't anticipate. I mean, I didn't think about like you think about how people are going to react, but the thing is people call me and go, oh my God, this is my grandfather's story. This is my mother's story. This was, you know, or our Armenians, you know, same, same thing or Pontic mm-hmm. Greeks. Like, oh, this was my, I'm Armenian, but this was the same journey. And it was so amazing to see it on paper and the stories. And, and then they start to tell me their stories and they have the same, my father did this, they, these amazing events. 
because here we are in safe America, you know, mm-hmm. it's safe. Here. And, you know, and I have former students who are in the middle of Ukraine that are I have former student film students who are, you know, were making literally making short films a month ago. And now they're manning machine guns at sandbags. Yeah. And, you know, we just that's so far from our thinking here in America. And, you know, but not for not for Syrians at that time. And his brother, Paul Edgar, his brother, Paul Edgar, was head of the, uh, Dr. Edgar, who uh, was head of the Syrian Association in the Bronx in the 1930s, in 1933. And I have all those documents. And I still keep in touch with his daughter, Natalie, born Natasha. And, um, and you know, I have all these documents and papers and letters when he was head of the Syrian Association in the Bronx in 33. And all the effort he was doing to try to make a aware of what was happening in the genocide in Iraq, you know, back then. And so um, they, they, they had quite a place, you know, and my grandmother, you know, you've seen the picture, my gorgeous grandmother, she was Miss Assyria of the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. Mm-hmm. And I was going to um, ask you about that. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, and that's that's Sarah Bennett's side of the family is her, her name was Ann John, and she was born in Chicago. My grandfather proposed to her, I think, in, within three, four days after meeting, right? They waited a long time back then. Yeah. <laughs> Give it 24 hours. Give it 72 hours, I say. And so, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, she was, um, and I just recently found some footage that Ruth had showed me, some footage someone put up on YouTube, of a Syrian footage from people from Chicago and the Bronx. Back then, I found my grandmother in them. Yeah, I saw. I, she showed me those. Oh, did Ruth show you? She showed me the videos. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was really, really my cool. Beautiful grandmother, and these videos. And I just reached out to uh, Sarah's. Uh, I don't think maybe a great uncle, Doug, who's got all this footage from the of the Syrian families in Chicago, Super Eight, sixteen millimeter. I'm I'm organizing it to get it because I work in Hollywood. I can get stuff mm-hmm. transferred and have it done correctly, and you know preserve the film. So I'm working on getting those transferred. Um, um, but uh, yeah, Mrs. Syria, um, it's just you know just two beautiful people. I think. I know. They're great photographs. And it was interesting growing up. I grew up in Santa Barbara, right? So the Assyrian community was my grandmother and grandfather. Yeah, that was it. The, the, I, all I knew was my uncle, my mom, and that there's no other Assyrians there. So growing up, I only knew these two Assyrians who, who um, you know, I didn't speak Assyrian, but they <laughs> come over for dinner. And they would, what sounded like yelling to me, they'd be <laughs> yelling at each other. And I'm like, what are you guys yelling about? And they're like, we're not yelling. <laughs> but growing up, the word, the first word I learned in Assyria was, um, Pachmada, right? <laughs> right? That was the first word I learned because everything ended with yelling, 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 and my grandmother going, Pachmada. And then <laughs> and I'm like, so one day we're driving in the car as a little boy, and my grandmother's in the passenger seat next to me, and my grandfather's driving, and they're having their discussion again, uh-huh. which is not yelling, but it sure sounds like yelling to me, yeah. right? And it ends with Pachmada. <laughs> And and I go I go pop what does that mean and he very proudly said it means genius and my I never saw my grandmother laugh harder never saw a woman laugh so hard as that more than that obviously I learned it meant you know ass of a yeah. donkey yes yeah. <laughs> and um, my grandmother was she was the sweetest kindest elegant woman oh she made the best chip to soup in Dolma. 
I'm like, I'd walk in the door and I can smell them. I just like, oh, my eyes would light up. So I just, you know, I, I strangely, that was, that was my Assyrian world, you yeah. know, um, growing up. And, you know, it expanded as I, I got to know my cousin Pierre and, and, and people through him and, and, you know, things like that. And, and, um, oh, and, you know, the stories can go on forever, but, um, yeah, it was great to have them as my grandparents, and 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 you know his my grandfather was such an American. I mean, they they loved their Assyrian. They, you know, but my grandfather would say, hey, "Look, we're Americans now." You know, I'd say, "Can you teach me Assyrian?" And he'd be like, "You're an." He says, "Look, you're an American now," and I've said that to people, and people, go, "Oh, well, that's horrible." And I'm like, "You got to take yourself back to 1921 and 1918, and you're leaving just death and war." And and all that you know, mm-hmm. all that that is, and you come to this country and you embrace it. Um, you know, it's different now with immigrants. You know, immigrants who come from Iran in the late seventies when the Shah was deposed. You know, there's there's, it wasn't he didn't want to keep the culture alive. It just it just I'm just an American now, and every we're just this is our world. And and um, but you know, he always told me Assyrian stories. I mean, it was. And I get it back then. So I, I kept a little notebook and I would just ask him what things were called and write mm-hmm. them down. And, you know, I was I was trying to teach myself Assyrian. I think they didn't want me to know what they were supposedly talking about. <laughs> they were trying to keep their secret language. It ended with Khmada. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was like for years, like, what does that mean? But, um, you know, and my uncle still lives there. And my mother, uh, my mother lives in uh, Asia. She lives in Bali, Indonesia. And, you know, but I've, I've, I, you know, I've had a rekindling with relatives. You know, Sarah's been a great cousin. We've, we've, we've hit it off wonderfully. Um, we talk, we text, and, um, and she's really into the history and genealogy, and mm-hmm. you know, so keeping that alive. And um, you know, that's, uh, that's 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 my story, and I'm sticking to it. There you go. Why did you name the book Dragons and Violins? It was the you know the dragons of your life. Mm. Violins is obvious, I think. Yeah, the dragons of your life. You know, my the demons of your life. I I remember, you know, he had all these amazing stories, but they come with pain. And when I got to the part of World War II, and when I would come and you know I'd come and stay at his house for a week, and we would you know do the interviews. But I noticed when I started doing your the 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 World War II sections, he was starting to have nightmares again. I would wake up and I can hear him kind of calling out and screaming. And I and I I've been sleeping in that house since I was you know mm-hmm. born. I mean he is a little boy, you know, like a little baby, he'd give me baths and tell me stories. I mean, I just that was that was my safe world. I'd never and I never heard him have nightmares and he told me he says yeah i've just been starting to have nightmares you know because the war and mm-hmm. conversations about that and um and another fascinating thing is we were getting later in his life in those recordings and he said can we go back and talk about my father i said sure and he just looked at me one day and he said you know my father really hated me and and he says I don't know why he just he just really had it out for me and I I I've always guessed maybe why I mean because if you look his oldest when my grandfather was born his oldest brother was like 21 22 mm-hmm. and then his sister was like 18 and 16 and Maria was like 14 and he's now you know and I've always yes. wondered did he question you know how did you get pregnant I've been off in Russia doing my you know 
wares and work and he used to build instruments and whatnot and and you know uh, you know i'm sure they're not familiar with how you know women get pregnant and are you know oh i'm ovulating you know this is not you know we can now have children and mm-hmm. you know i i don't think sex ed was <laughs> running around the the parapet there back in old ermia right yeah. And so I, I've always questioned, he wonder how she got pregnant. Like he comes home and she's pregnant and, you know, is this mine? Is this, you know, I, I've had to guess, but he started telling stories later in life. You know, he's later in the interviews, he says, I don't know why he had such a hard. And I think that, you know, I think, I think that's why he was such a good grandfather to me. Maybe, you know, he was, he was, he was parenting me in the way he wanted to be parented, I think. Mm-hmm and really giving and caring. Um, you know, one thing I learned about him and Assyrians is, is they're such givers of, you know, um, like, oh, my God, what a beautiful watch. Oh, please, please take the watch. Please have it. And so my whole life, my my grandfather was always that way, you know, like, oh, please, you know, like, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, you must have it, right? This is <laughs> such a thing. And so when he started telling me stories, he says, yeah, when I was a boy and my grandma, he says his mother would say, we have guests coming over for dinner, hide all the good things. <laughs> and I'm like, why? He says, oh, because if they liked it, you gave it to them. <laughs> Take it. So so the, the thing was, we have fam- we have guests coming over, hide all the good things. <laughs> That's so, so funny. So if they like something, you didn't care. They gave it away. I'm like, oh, that's where that comes from. Like, why you're just so, oh, please take my watch. You know, here, please have this. So, so that that cracked me up to learn. It was hide the good thing. Guests are coming over. <laughs> and um, it's not in the book. My mother would tell me images when she was a little girl. You know, Nana Khatun with my grandmother, Catherine, right? He's just, I mean, what a combat-weary woman who had all these killed kids and went through that whole genocide in America. But he says, she says, my my images of my grandmother, she would sit there watching wrestling on television, smoking a hookah, and drinking a Schlitz malt liquor beer. That was her thing, just wow. this just old tough and if you see the i've you know her later in life just there's you're just like there's a woman i don't effing want to mess with (laughs) and and she said and i just have this vision of her just glued to the television hookah schlitz beer and wrestling wow and i love how you added in photos in the book because it really really like helped oh doesn't it yeah i i have hundreds of photos I mean, I just was like, when I started going through his possessions, I don't like, oh my God, I have receipts for, for, for soldiers and POWs in World War II. I have, I have their original photograph and from the caucuses that going oh. through the American embassy. I, there's a receipt that when they were waiting for his father and two older sisters, after like three years, he, he earned $500 and he sent it. It was the, the Near East Relief Fund. And it said, this 500 is for my wife, you know, Catherine George to come to America with her, our, my children, George and Maria. Should she decide to stay, she can have $200 and 300 has to be sent back to me. <laughs> I'm like, wow, oh, wow, wow, you guys are hardcore back there. You're not coming, you only get 200. 200 only. <laughs> So, but they obviously came and, you know, I have those and, and the photographs and uh, yeah, the photographs, yeah, they, they, it brings it to life. And I found all these pictures of my grandmother, you know, the Chicago World's Fair and their, their dress, their, their Assyrian traditional mm-hmm. clothing dress up and, 
And I don't have it in the book, but there's a picture of her with her big banner sachet across her chest that says Mrs. Syria 1933. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I was probably about 10. And she says, you know, when we were when I was a little girl during the Depression, we didn't have any any toys so we had to make our own toys and she so she says you want me to show you i said sure so she she takes out a cork from a wine bottle that had been pulled by from my grandfather night before and she takes a little chunk of the cork out from the bottom of it and she takes a little knife and she carves this little tiny ball that's maybe a half inch in diameter and i'm like watching like what are you doing right and then she goes to the kitchen window where there's a fly buzzing around she grabs the fly without killing it she grabs a fly she takes a sewing needle and she takes the sewing needle and she sticks it in the back of the fly and so now you have this needle sticking straight up you have this fly who's alive like this right mm -hmm. she then takes the other end of the needle and she takes the cork she sits the cork on the table and the end that wasn't carved is facing up and she sticks the needle and the top of the cork. So you have a cork standing straight up. From there is a needle standing straight up and a fly with its legs sticking up straight to the sky and going like this. Then she takes the little ball of cork and she puts it in the fly's hands and the fly starts spinning the ball. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. Like my, my grandmother, I'm just like jaw wide open, like what the, right? And she says, yeah, you know, we had to come up with things to do. We didn't have money. <laughs> That is interesting. Form around of this fly, and it's it's because the fly is trying to grab onto something, so it spins the ball. Oh my gosh! I know. I'm like I'm like oh my god! This is the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen in my life, and the most amazing thing, right? I'm mean, like, imagine your grandmother sitting down. Yeah, and they had to use their imagination. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. When you got a tin can and dirt is all you got to play with, because yeah. you, you come up with things. You come up with things. <laughs> So what's one thing that people don't know about you? Mm. We talked about your career. We talked about the book and your grandfather and your family. Wow. I don't know. I, I wish I could come up with something. I mean, I kind of just sort of put myself out on the table. I mean, my grandfather, my relationship, my story, my career. What it, what, you know, I don't want to throw it at you. I don't know. Your childhood. Um, what, I mean, you kind of touched on that. <clears throat> yeah, the, book a little bit. the book goes through well how, you know how that came to be mm -hmm. you know the things that you don't know about me are actually in the book okay there we go um there are these what i call the dave chapters they're like in between so if you haven't read the book the, there's chapters they're about 34 pages long and then in between them there i'm not telling you obviously mm -hmm. the audience that there's these what I call the Dave chapter. It's like just two pages of me relating to my grandfather. So it talks about me being born in 1962, the, my childhood, which wasn't a great childhood. You know, my, my mother's first husband was very abusive and alcoholic. And so I had, a, you know, there was a lot of abuse on that side in my mother's world growing up, not by from her, but by my father and my sister is her second husband. So there's, you know, that's why, that's why my grandfather's world was a place of, you know, retreat and yeah, you get away from that, that tough, that tough childhood, you know, but that tough childhood is also what informs me. Um, well, there's something maybe that childhood, I found an answer to your question, that childhood, it really informs me as a filmmaker, because, you know, if you want to be a director, you know, when students say, well, what advice would you give me? I say, you got, you need to have an extraordinary life and experiences you have to bring experiences to the table when you're you're directing because you know you can't 
even though I've never been in war, I've, I've been talked with enough people. I can I have some essence and feeling. But, you know, that childhood I had was a tough childhood. And, and, and my grandfather was my saving grace. I don't think I'd be the man who I am if it wasn't for my grandfather, who just had unconditional love for me and a, and a childhood that was really turbulent, that had abuse and alcohol in it. Um, not by me. <laughs> I wasn't doing the drinking at five. <laughs> um, but that 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 kindness my grandfather gave me saved my life. I don't, you know, obviously I can't prove it, but I've often wondered why I didn't go the way of being a, an abusive man or an alcoholic. You know, because when you're a product of that, you sort of you can become that. You can become the environment you had growing up. And, and, um, and, you know, and I had to work through a lot to get over that, 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 that abuse and, and not deny it and not, not blame anything. My, you know, not say, Oh, I'm this way because that happened. It's my life, you know, you know, shit happens to you, but I, I can't blame anyone. It's my life. And I have to straighten my own life out. But I think my grandfather's unconditional love for me. I think my grandfather's, belief in me and whatever I was doing was great. It was, it was, you know, I didn't have a father growing up. Right. So my mom divorced my father when he was like three and, you know, he was sent off to Vietnam and he got horribly wounded and disabled. You know, I mean, they gave him a silver star, but I met him once when I was 15. He was one screwed up guy from the Vietnam war. And um, so my grandfather was my father. He was my love. He's, he's, I think, what kept me from, I don't know. I don't know. Life could have been a lot different if it wasn't for him. It, it would have been a lot different had I not had that love. Mm -hmm. Plain and simple. I think, you know, when you look at people who are tyrants in the world, people who seem to be insensitive to other people suffering, um <clears throat> You know, I, I think it's it's a product of their childhood. You know, we're all childhood. I, I you know, you've heard of pit bulls, right? Mm -hmm. And pit bulls tend to have these horrible reputations. But did you know pit bulls were called nanny dogs in England in the late 19th century, in the 1800s? Uh, pit bulls were nanny dogs because they were the one dog you could leave your children with, and the dog would watch after them. He would take care of them. They were the dog you could trust more than any other animal to watch after your dog. Now, pit bulls get a bad reputation because they're abused to be mean, right? And so then they get this reputation and you find out they're called nanny dogs yeah. and you have great 18th century dogs. So, I mean, we, you know, we are a product of our, of our upbringing. And I think maybe something, you know, what do people know about me that don't know about me? Um, is that, I think life obviously would have been something else. I can't say what it was, but I'm pretty confident um had he not been there and and just loved me unconditionally that unconditional love uh, set me on a path to you know my life and and you know he saved me mm -hmm. i think uh, that and 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 the book comes out of just absolute love for him and 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 that payback and i and and because of that i mean i was with him to the day he died he was, I held him in my arms as he let his last breath out. And I talk about that in the book. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, I, he was at this hospital in Ojai. 
And I would go in his last three, four weeks of his life, I would go every day and I'd sit with him for like 10 hours. And, and I just, I did not want him to leave this earth alone. And he was in one of those hospitals where they morph out old people and nobody visits. And, you know, it's sort of a, you know, a train station, train way. It's to, to you know, to death. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't stand for him to do that. And he had created such a great relationship with me. It was, it was hard, but it was easy. It was like, and I remember leaving there one day and a nurse at like 10 o'clock at night, she said, why do you come every day? And I said, well, because I love him and I don't want him to leave alone. And I said, why do you ask? She goes, because no one comes to visit these people. You're just, you're, you know, you're the only one. I said, well, it was easy to do because he, cre- he, he created that relationship. He made the bed, right? He made his bed in, mm-hmm. and that bed was that relationship with me, not to speak of anyone else's relationship, but it was, you know, there's, there's something nobody really knows about me because that's, that's what's behind the book. Mm-hmm was yeah. just it was just pure love and it just and i wanted to tell his story and that's you know it was if i leave this earth writing that book will be my greatest accomplishment that 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 is like it mm-hmm. i have other goals in the film industry and screenplays and and this book into a movie but you know writing that and then one last thing i guess when you think about what are some things that people don't know about you, you don't think about them because nobody knows because <laughs> they're buried so deep. But I remember the the night I was done with the book, like I was going to hit the send button to the publisher. Once I hit the send button to the publisher, it was done. It was mm-hmm. done. And I remembered suddenly getting ready to hit that send button. And I remembered thinking I had a moment. It took me about 10 minutes to hit the send button. I said, my relation, this relationship in this moment is about to end because he'd been dead. But relationships are in thought. They don't exist in physical form. Like the minute your mom leaves, your dad leaves, the relationship doesn't end because they're not there. And when people die, the relationships actually become stronger. You, you think about them more. You have conversations with them. They speak to you. you know, what would they say? What would they do? And, and I had been writing about him for almost, I don't know, seven years, eight years at that point, seven years at that point after he left and I realized that I wasn't going to be thinking about him on a daily basis. And I, once I hit the send button, it was kind of, it was sort of losing him all over again mm-hmm. in a way, because now this is going to come to an end. And my, cause every day I'm thinking about him, right? Writing, thinking, researching, talking to Russell. And so it was, there was a, there was a second letting go mm-hmm. the send button, you know, cause I just, and I haven't read the book since I published it and, I don't know, November 2010, I think. I've been thinking about recently, I've been thinking about rereading it again. And you forget a few things that are in there. <laughs> part that you wrote about this and you're like, oh, is that in the book? Oh, oh yeah, that's right. You know, because it's it's now going on 11 years or 10 and a yeah. half years since I've written it. So I haven't, I haven't revisited it yet. And I think maybe I'm, you know, I've been thinking, I've just recently been thinking, I think I'm going to reread it again. Yeah. Well, you, you'll go through that journey again with, with the movie, hopefully. Oh, yeah. And then you got to refine it into its purest form, you know, because, mm-hmm. you, you know, you got to just find those, those beats. And so, mm-hmm. you know, with Ruth's help, I'm hoping that we can get enough, you know, maybe crowdfund and mm-hmm. raise the money to write, to write, a, write at least the pilot and the episodes and, mm-hmm. I think it would be an amazing story. Absolutely. I agree. 
So how the Dave chapters came about was I had finished the manuscript and I thought I was done. And a very uh, close friend of mine, uh, she's a director from Canada. Her uncle was or was the head of Penguin Books, I think, Canada and USA. And he was so kind to take the manuscript and give it to his main reader. And they read it. And they came back and they said, well, this is really well done, but they they were very also very honest, which I guess in that in book industry you gotta be. They said, so what? So he was this guy that did all these things. What was your relationship to him? What was your connection to him? What was the human connection of all that? And I and I came back, I, I was like, well, geez, I, I hadn't thought about that. And also the book ends, as you've read, it ends in 1956 when he Chicago Symphony Orchestra. So they gave me a sort of an odd compliment was like, well, what happened to his sisters and his mother and his wife, Anne, and what happened to everyone? Because it just stopped in 1956. He says, but we, you, you just leave us hanging with this great story and nobody's, we don't know where they went. So Russell said, why don't I do this, David? Russell Martin, the editor, he said, why don't I interview you? And I'll write the Dave chapters and we'll just do like two pages between each chapter that way you get my relationship to my grandfather and what happens to everyone as time goes on and then we go back mm. kind of like when you saw the Titanic we were present day when you know she's she's an old woman and you know mm. and, and 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 then she starts talking we go back to the Titanic it, it was kind of that the storytelling so um Russell wrote wrote those chapters and I didn't have anything to do with them. I mean, I could have said no, but uh, he asked me about my life and he interviewed me and then wrote those and, and we put them between each chapter. So you can, you got my relationship to him, maybe some parallels, um, you know, right. Uh, you know, when my grandmother, his wife, Anne, and she died, that's in there. And so you've got a sense how everything, how the story ended. Because I just was ending it in 1956. Because then he comes to America and, you know, he starts in Chicago, I mean, Santa Barbara Symphony Orchestra with other members. And, you know, it's not as, you know, it's not as tumultuous. It's not, you know, he lived in Santa Barbara. Oh, my God, the chaos of Santa Barbara, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so that was, uh, that's how those chapters. So then I went back in, put those chapters in. And, you know, as I call them the Dave chapters, those are how people got to get something personal from me and my connection to my grandfather. And, and you got to find out how it all ended. For mm -hmm. So that's how it came about. Um, are you directing anything right now in Hollywood? Not directing anything at the moment. I mean, I have a screenplay that's being read. Well, actually today by one, I have, um, another screenplay being read by a famous Hollywood couple who are both actors and um and i have to leave it at that just okay. um um that they're reading uh it's a horror it's a really really cool horror story that i didn't write called mine m-i-n-e and i'm hoping they like that so and um yeah, it, you know, it, it's the Hollywood game is you sit around a fire with a bunch of pokers in the fire and you're waiting for one to get red hot, you know, and, and you walk by and I'm you're like, how's it going, Dave? Well, just sit by the fire waiting for, you know, one of these mm. to get hot. But but Ruth has recently said, let's start a GoFundMe. Let's raise the money so we can take the time because because for because Valerie has her job and a screenplay she's working on. So we need to raise the money. If we're going to stop and write the pilot, we have to stop doing things that make money for us mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So, so we can concentrate on that. And we're, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, go for maybe like 40 or $50,000 to raise it. Cause it's, it's, it's a lot of work mm-hmm. just, you know, writing a pilot, especially when I got to synthesize it down from a book. Right? Yeah. So you really have to figure out what are the 10 episodes and what do they encompass? And, you know, so, um, you know, we'll, uh, you know, stay tuned. We'll hopefully, yeah, if we could raise the money to get it going, it, it, it'll, it'd be the love of my grandfather and a huge contribution. I, I believe would be my contribution to, to my Syrian legacy, my Syrian family mm-hmm. heritage. You know, I, I, I would love to really <clears throat> branch out more and, and sort of, you know, when you mention a Syrian, I'm like, Oh, what's that? You know, you've had it, sure. You know, yeah, yeah. numerous times. The super mega Syrian, what's that? Um, you know, I'd like to put it. I'd like to put us on the map a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So we have listeners all around the world listening to the Syrian podcast. To end off the episode, what is one final thing that you'd like to say to our listeners? Oh my goodness, that's a big audience. <laughs> All the way down to Australia and everywhere, you name it. Sherlock and Chicago and mm-hmm. Iraq. I have Assyrian cousins in Lebanon. Well, I'm very proud to be an Assyrian. Um, you know, I mean, it's 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 the one half of me. I think I saw it in a Syrian convention. They even had a shirt that said, "I'm half Assyrian." <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to wear that, but <laughs> but um, yeah, I love my I love my culture. I love my heritage. I think it's it's an amazing. You know, I mean, we're credited as ruling the only nation to have ruled the known world far and above Rome, which I think is amazing. You know, mm-hmm. um, I want to, my goal is 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 to hopefully have the support of the Assyrian community to help me tell a story that will engage non-Assyrians and as engage people who've never heard of Assyria or Assyrians and, you know, and let them know of who we are, our culture, our base, our history you know, our place in the world um, and all that we have to contribute, you know? So um, I'd be honored if they read my book. Um, that would certainly be nice. I think they would like it, you know? You like it, so there's one person I know for sure likes There you it. go. Yeah, so I'm doing good. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I hope to have that support someday, you know, to try to get it. I, I mean, I... I don't think it's a long shot. I think, I mean, every time I meet someone who's read my book or knows, I'm like, oh my God, you got to make that into a movie. Like now, you got to do it now. I'm like, well, it's a long process here in Hollywood. But yeah, I started with the book and now we're going to try to do a pilot. Yeah. And see if I can't shop it around town or get, you know, but or find Assyrians out there who would love to support and back us. I mean, Ruth is working that part of the world and, you know, we, we'd certainly because it bring someone on who could be in a producer, an executive producer for this production. Yeah. So that's what I would say to everyone. Very good. David, thank you so much for being on the Assyrian podcast. No, oh, my pleasure. It's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Assyrian podcast and your continued support. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening and share this episode with your family and friends. Thank you and see you all next week.